the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. Today we're going to hear from Shelby Abbott. We'll talk about a guide to navigating student stress and Jack Alexander on the Mercy Journey. That's coming up in the 5 o'clock hour today. First, to look at some of the uh, the headlines, President Trump unbowed by backlash over his tweets urging progressive congresswomen to go back to their broken and crime-infested home countries, fired back at his critics in another tweet storm on Sunday, suggesting it was so sad to see Democrats sticking up for lawmakers who speak so badly of our country and hate Israel with a true and unbridled passion. Whenever confronted, they call their adversaries, including Nancy Pelosi, racist. Trump went on to tweet their disgusting language and the many terrible things they say about the United States must not be allowed to go unchallenged. Well, in the tweet, and we'll talk more about this a bit later in the program, the president uh, used the old trope, go back to your home country. Only one of the four actually immigrated to the, the uh, country. But again, we'll talk more about that later in this first hour, but Trump's tweets didn't name any specific congresswomen, although it was obvious to whom he referred, but he appeared to be referring to representatives Ilhan Omar, a Democrat out of Minnesota, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez out of New York, um, uh, Ayanna Presley uh, from Massachusetts, and Representative Rashida Tlaib of Michigan. A quarter of um, a freshman lawmakers had had a very public rift with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi over the past week. However, Trump's tweets appeared to unite the Democrats as they rose up to condemn the president as racist and divisive. Pelosi tweeted when at real Donald Trump tells four American congresswomen to go back to their countries. He reaffirms his plan to make America great again has always been about making America white again. Now, is that a fair statement, given some of the comments made by this uh, panel of four? We'll talk about that a bit later in the program. Again, a headline, a nationwide crackdown uh, to apprehend thousands of illegal immigrants across the country took over the weekend in New York uh, and several other places, according to an official. Immigration and Custom Enforcement resumed its previously announced plan to apprehend thousands of illegal immigrants who've been given orders to leave the country, targeting people in at least 10 cities. The ICE raids began late Saturday and into the early morning hours on Sunday in a number of jurisdictions, not just New York City, a senior administration official confirmed. However, one city announced it was not cooperating with ICE and even gave illegal immigrants legal advice. Los Angeles Mayor Mayor rather Eric Garcetti released a Twitter video on Saturday explaining why he and the city's government gave legal advice to those living in Los Angeles illegally and informed them of which city resources they could take advantage of, including but not limited to a lawyer. Now keep in mind, these are those who have had a final judgment from a sitting judge saying you must now leave the country. They've gone through the entire process. And Democratic presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke revealed on Twitter on Sunday that he and his wife, Amy, are both descended from slave owners, uh, something that we've been talking about in town hall meetings. The legacy of slavery in the United States now has a much more personal connection, O'Rourke said. I was uh, recently given documents showing that both Amy and I are descended from people who own slaves. 
He included a link to a medium.com article he wrote titled Rosa and Eliza. It referenced uh, the two slaves, one his distant relatives, um, one of two of his distant relatives own. I guess this is sort of your bona fides now to make that pronouncement. I won't tell you how it impresses me. We'll leave that for another day. Shares were mixed on Monday in Asia, led by gains in China's market after the government reported that the economy grew at the slowest pace in a decade in the last quarter. Analysts said the 6.2 percent annual rate of growth reported for April, June suggested the target war between the United States and or rather the trade war between the United States and China is hammering industries. The growth data for China was the weakest since the first quarter of 2009. In the aftermath of the global financial crisis, Trump and Chinese President Xi Jinping agreed in late June to restart talks on their standoff over the longstanding U.S. trade deficit and Chinese economic policies the U.S. Uh, side says is unfair. And it was obvious to anyone watching the men's Wimbledon final on Sunday to notice that the crowd leaned heavily in favor of eight-time champion Roger Federer over his opponent, Novik Djurovic. The New York Times summed up the crowd's reaction when Federer made an error. There were groans when uh, Djurovic uh, made an error. There, were, there was applause. He revealed a mental trick, according to the Times. After winning the match, after nearly five hours, he told reporters that when the crowd chanted, Roger, Roger, he said... He heard Novik, Novik. It sounded silly, but it's like Novik. It's just like that. China's economic growth sank to its lowest level in the last 26 years in the quarter ending in June, adding to pressure on Chinese leaders as they fight a tariff war with Washington. And the Trump administration said late on Friday it was issuing final rules to suspend the 2016 Obama administration regulations that more than doubled penalties for automakers failing to meet fuel efficiency requirements. And former Vice President Joe Biden has released a plan his campaign said would make the Affordable Care Act easier to navigate with more choices for Americans. The plan would expand upon the Affordable Care Act passed under the Obama-Biden administration and provide public uh, a public option rather for for patients to buy into rather than a Medicare for all system that several of Biden's 2020 rivals advocate for. A contrast Biden has already started to draw on the campaign trail. And U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said on Saturday that a two-year budget agreement with the Trump administration must include equal increases in defense and non-defense spending, plus additional money for a program intended to improve health care for military veterans. And in a 220-197 vote, the House passed the National Defense Authorization Act on Friday, giving a win to Democratic leaders who'd spent months coaxing progressives to vote for the defense funding package. And on this day in 1799, French soldiers in Egypt discover the Rosetta Stone, which proves instrumental in deciphering ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs. And on this day in 1910, the term Alzheimer's disease is used to describe a progressive form of pre-senile dementia in the book's Clinical Psychiatry by a German psychiatrist, Emil Kraupelin, who credited the work of his colleague, um, Alwa Alzheimer, in identifying the condition. And on this day in 1971, President Richard Nixon delivers a televised address in which he announces that he had accepted an invitation to visit the People's Republic of China. And finally, on this day in 2008, in an all-star game that begins at dusk and ends at 1.37 a.m. the next morning, the American League defeated the National League 4-3 to in 15 innings at Yankee Stadium. 
We're going to take a break here in just a moment. When we come back, we'll bring you up to date on the power that was uh, that has since been restored after New York City transformer fire caused blackouts in part of Manhattan. You can imagine that. Uh, we'll tell you more about that and much more when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show on this rather unpredictable Monday afternoon. Well, electricity was restored to thousands of customers in New York City on Saturday evening after an outage knocked out traffic lights, stalled elevators, limited subway service. Now, we're talking about New York City, if you can just imagine that. Just before midnight, Con Edison CEO uh, John McAvoy said in a news conference that all 73,000 customers affected by the outage in Midtown Manhattan and the Upper West Side had power restored. At its peak, the outage affected an area from 71st Street South to 42nd Street East from the West Side of uh, West Side Highway to Fifth Avenue. And for those of you who might be familiar with the layout, you can see what a broad swath of New York City that was. New York uh, uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo added that although service was was restored, some traffic lights remained out, and New Yorkers should stay indoors for their safety. We would not encourage New Yorkers to go out if you don't have to go out, he said, calling the situation potential pandemonium. Uh, this could be could have been much worse, he said, commending first responders and New Yorkers. Uh, when things are at their worst, New Yorkers are at their best. And while fortunately no injuries occurred as a result of the incident, the fact that it happened at all is unacceptable, Cuomo said in a statement earlier. I am directing the Department of Public Services to investigate and identify the exact cause of the outages to help prevent an incident of this magnitude from happening again. Until the recovery is complete, we'll continue to take all necessary action to ensure the safety and security of New Yorkers. The system has to be better than that, period, he said. While the state-run Metropolitan Transportation Authority, or MTA, tweeted on Saturday evening that signals on the A, B, C, D, E, F, and M subway lines were affected and four stations were temporarily closed to the public due to a lack of power, and uh, it affected just about everything. One of the uh, New York City Council's uh, members, uh, Corey Johnson, tweeted uh, that Con Edison had reported a major disturbance at the substation. Con Ed spokesman um, Sidney Alvarez said that the uh, utility experienced an equipment failure at one of the substations but wasn't sure the specific location. Um, uh, Strap Hangers uh, tweeted photos of blacked out trains, stations, and non-working traffic lights, which might have been somewhat difficult to decipher given the fact that it was a blackout. Social media was full of reports of ordinary citizens directing traffic at some midtown intersections. Police officers were directing traffic at uh, other major thoroughfares. The Fire Department of New York said it received uh, reports of people stuck in elevators in the Upper West Side, subway passengers stuck on trains, which would have been miserable, I would imagine. The temperature was warm. It was above 80 degrees, even in the sunset, uh, but not as steaming as Manhattan can get in July. So that was one benefit. Mayor Bill de Blasio commented from a presidential campaign visit in Iowa initially, said the city's emergency management agency was working with police and fire personnel to respond to the affected areas. Uh, and it went on. Well, Saturday marked the 42nd anniversary of the 1977 blackout, which affected much of the city for 48 hours and resulted in widespread looting, arson and other criminal activities. So I guess when um, Andrew Cuomo says it could have been much worse, he is, uh, has something to compare it to. Well, Democratic frontrunner Joe Biden on Monday unveiled a health plan that's intended to preserve the most popular parts of Obamacare from Medicaid expansion to Protections for patients with pre-existing conditions. 
and build on them with a government-run public insurance option. Well, Biden would also empower Medicare to directly negotiate drug prices, allow the importation of prescription drugs from abroad, and extend tax credits to help tens of millions of Americans buy lower-priced health insurance. The plan, which the campaign says will cost $750 billion over a decade to be paid for by reversing some of the Trump administration's tax cuts, is less transformative than the Medicare for All proposal advanced by Senator Bernie Sanders and supported by some other Democrats, which would effectively do away with private insurance altogether and shift all Americans to government-run health coverage. Uh, Biden said in a video posted this morning, I understand the appeal of Medicare for all, but folks supporting it should be clear that it means getting rid of Obamacare. And I'm not for that, end quote. Well, progressives have argued that Democratic candidates should aim for Medicare for all because it protects the party from starting with and settling for a more incremental compromise. Democrats and former President Obama previously supported a public option that could compete with private health insurance before dropping it as uh, part of negotiations around the affordable. Care Act. Well, on a call with reporters on Sunday, the campaign staff stressed that Biden wouldn't settle for a watered down compromise as president and that his plan would help 97 percent of Americans get health coverage. Nearly five million Americans in states that haven't expanded Medicaid uh, would get premium free access to Biden's new public option. For instance, we're starting with the Affordable Care Act as the base and going to insist on the elements that we sought last time. The senior Biden campaign official said, speaking to uh, members of the media, well, Biden's public option plan drew fire from Republicans, no surprise there, and healthcare industry lobbyists who said the proposals went too far. The Biden administration also would allow all shoppers on the individual insurance market to qualify for premium tax credits, which are currently capped at four times the federal poverty level or nearly $50,000 for an individual. Undocumented immigrants would be newly allowed to purchase coverage uh, with the ACA marketplaces, although they wouldn't be eligible for federal subsidies, the campaign official said. While speaking with reporters, campaign staff slammed the Trump administration's efforts to strike down the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, in court, and also addressed Biden's differences with rival candidates. Biden on Friday suggested that there would be a hiatus for, of six months, a year, two, three, that would put patients at risk if Democrats pursued Medicare for all a claim that Sanders swiftly attacked as misinformation. In response to uh, questions, Biden's campaign said the former vice president was emphasizing the need for immediate action. You can uh, decide for yourself if you embrace uh, his plan. You can find that at his campaign website. And President Trump uh, doubled down on Monday after taking heavy fire for inflammatory tweets calling on Democratic congresswomen to go back to where they came from. If you're not familiar with that phrase, if you happen to be a minority in the United States, chances are you've heard that spoken to you in various tones of voice at one point or another. So it's a familiar trope, even though most of his intended uh, targets were born in America, as he called on those same lawmakers to apologize, alleging they hate America and chastise the party for defending them. Speaking to reporters outside the White House, he also denied that his tweets were racist and said, if somebody doesn't like our country, if somebody doesn't want to be in our country, they should leave. Uh, he continued, these are people that hate our country. They hate it, I think, with a passion. Well, in a contentious exchange with the press at a White House economic event, the president made clear that his criticism was aimed at freshman Congressman 
Congresswomen uh, like Representative Ilhan Omar and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. He alleged Omar in particular hates Israel, hates Jews, and even suggested she has love for enemies like al-Qaeda. Well, the comments escalate an already raging battle between Trump and congressional Democrats, with House Speaker Pelosi announcing a resolution to formally condemn his remarks uh, he called xenophobic. Now, she wasn't quite so quick to condemn remarks that were made by Ilhan Omar, which were equally offensive. But nonetheless, this weekend, she went on to say the president went beyond his own low standards using disgraceful language about members of Congress. Well, in uh, spirited remarks tinged with open animosity in response to those comments, Representative Ilhan Omar uh, standing side by side with representatives uh, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Um, uh, Ayan Presley and Rashida Tlaib, they declared at a news conference on Capitol Hill on Monday that it is time for us to impeach this president for openly violating his constitutional oath. Now, tweeting unflattering things doesn't really cut the, the mustard, if that's what they're referring to, that this was the last straw. But uh, Omar said the eyes of history are watching us in this pivotal moment. This is a president who has... Uh, well, she rehearsed some of the things that he has been accused of and said and been overheard saying over the years. Presley, in her remarks, repeatedly referred to Trump as the occupant of the White House, seeking to marginalize and silence the women who uh, but quickly turned her focus to various issues from gun violence to immigration, saying she does not acknowledge him as president of the United States, uh, but rather the occupant of the White House. Just hours earlier, the president uh, doubled down on his call, as I mentioned. Um, Ilhan Omar, she asserted that the U.S. had a long way to go until it could live up to its founding values. She repeated unsubstantiated allegations that people were drinking from toilets in immigration detention centers. U.S. officials have fiercely contested those claims. Well, the back and forth uh, deprived the Republicans of the opportunity to watch the uh, Democrats melt down. It gave the Democrats an opportunity uh, to rally around a, a single target, the one most hated, Donald Trump. And Donald Trump, it seems to me, won absolutely nothing. Um, and uh, in fact, Jonah Goldberg wrote a piece. I want to share it with you when we come back from the break. Uh, and his headline was simply Trump's personality is his biggest reelection obstacle. He can do something that benefits the country, but then he tweets or he says something and he's unlikable to a large swath of Americans, even those who say they like his policies, but don't necessarily care for him. More on that when we come back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 35 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Eh, we won't mention that just yet. I mentioned that uh, Jonah Goldberg, he actually wrote this uh, a few weeks ago, but uh, the headline was uh, in National Review, Trump's personality is his biggest re-election obstacle. And he writes, the problem for Trump is that if the central question of the election is him, he will lose because he's not popular. What's your pitch to the swing voter on the fence? Well, ABC's George Stephanopoulos asked President Trump in an interview that aired a few weeks ago. Questions of this sort are gifts to politicians, but interviewers ask them for a couple of reasons. One, they're civic-minded. Politicians deserve the opportunity to make their case straightforwardly, and voters deserve to hear them. Second, they save time. Uh, if you give your subject a free shot to get the talking points out of the way, you can move on to the more interesting stuff. Well, Trump's initial answer started off following the standard script. He got four words off uh, that must have had his political advisors cheering, safety, security, great economy. Ideally, this is where Trump should have stopped talking. But the president kept going, boasting that he won 52 percent of the women's vote in 2016. He didn't. 
Uh, that was the white women's vote. He got 41 percent of women overall, according to exit polls. Then Trump talked about how the economy would help him with minorities. So Stephanopoulos asked, that's the pitch. Trump briefly um, got back to uh, back on message. No, I have no pitch. He said, you know what I am. The economy is phenomenal. We've rebuilt our um, military. We're taking care of our vets. We're doing the best job that anybody's done, probably as a first term president in quote. Well, this was another good place to stop, but he was only getting warmed up. I have a phony witch hunt, which is just phony pile of stuff. Uh, Mueller comes out. There's no collusion and essentially a ruling that no obstruction. And then Trump was off to the races, fighting with Stephanopoulos about what the Mueller report did or didn't say. The facts weren't on uh, Trump's side, as virtually every news outlet was eager to trump uh, trumpet. But politically, that's not the important part. Impeachment is catnip to the mainstream media and to Democrats. Whether Trump was set up by the deep state or their uh, dossier is catnip to Republicans and right-wing media. But it seems a fair bet that the swing voters Stephanopoulos asked about aren't intoxicated by either topic. And that's a problem for Trump. When you talk to people who think Trump but will be reelected, they point to conventional rules about how good the economy makes voters want to uh, stay on, uh, stay the course. That's superficially plausible, but it leaves out the single most important fact of the political landscape, Trump's personality. A good economy doesn't necessarily uh, speak for itself. Normal presidential uh, presidents rather stay on message to deny the press the ability to talk about more interesting stuff. The only talking point Trump can uh, can have uh, be counted on to stick to is himself. Hence, his claim to Stephanopoulos that no one has been treated worse than him. Trump doesn't want to want the election to be about the economy. He wants it and everything else about him. His exchange with Stephanopoulos was an analog of every Trump rally. He runs through the talking points about the economy or conservative judges as quickly as possible so he can get to the really important topic, Donald Trump. The problem for Trump is that if the central question of the election is him, he will lose because he's not popular. The Trump campaign's internal polling, which was leaked last week, and this is a few weeks ago, showed him trailing Joe Biden in several must-win states by wide margins. Brad Parscale, Trump's campaign manager, said the polls were irrelevant because it was ancient data from last March, taken before uh, he was exonerated by the Mueller report. But Trump's post-Mueller report approval rating doesn't uh, hadn't improved. It has since. But Trump's sub-50 uh, percent approval rating has had the least variation of any president since World War II. Most people have made up their minds about him, and most of them don't like him. Now, whether or not they embrace his policies is a separate question, but likability is going to weigh heavily in this um, matchup with whoever the Democrats bring forward. The campaign responded by saying it had fresh data showing solid support from informed voters. Pascal told ABC News that since March, uh, we have seen huge swings in the president's favor across 17 states we have polled based on the politics now espoused by the Democrats. Well, the key words there are informed voters. According to the New York Times, the poll that he describes um, as informed um, ballot polls that describe Democrats in negative ways before asking about support for Trump. Well, the common wisdom among pollsters is that if you're citing information or rather informed ballot polls, you're losing. But even uh, taken at face value, the meaning of these polls is that some voters could be persuaded to vote for Trump if they could be convinced they were voting on issues rather than Trump. For that to work, Trump would have to stop acting like Trump and make the message about something other than him. And that is a tall order. I think um, Jonah Goldberg, anticipating this and every other situation that has shifted attention away from an accomplishment to some foible or outrageous uh, comment or or so on, uh, is the pattern that we've seen for the last um, uh, several years and may, in fact, cost the election if the president doesn't recognize 
uh, the shift that now must take place. Well, former Acting Immigration and Customs Enforcement Director Thomas Homan, he delivered a fiery defense of border agents during the uh, House hearing where Democratic lawmakers just hours earlier had decried conditions at uh, migration detention centers as he ripped into the agency's congressional critics and said they should be ashamed of their conduct. If you don't like this, do your job. Fix it. He testified before the House Oversight Committee, recalling in graphic details his own experience on the job, seeing dead bodies in tractor trailers as he understood the severity of the border crisis. He said agents amid this crisis have been subject to unprecedented attacks and vilification. And those men and women who chose the life of service to this nation deserve better, not only from the media, but those in this committee and other members of Congress. As a 34-year veteran, again, the acting uh, Immigration Customs Enforcement, uh, Enforcement Director Thomas Homan said, as a 34-year veteran of law enforcement, it is shocking, shocking to see constant attacks against those that leave the safety and security of their homes every day, put their Kevlar vest uh, on and uh, put a gun in their hip and risk their own safety to defend this nation, he said, at times appearing to get choked up as he defended his former colleagues. He appeared to be in part uh, referring to accusations by Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and others who've made a host of allegations against agents, including that migrants were made to drink from toilet bowls. Ocasio-Cortez blasted the Trump administration's immigration policies and stood by her accounts from the border during testimony on Friday alongside her colleagues, the uh, the gang of four, as one uh, commentator put it. Th- those that attack the professional integrity of those that serve and blatantly throw unsubstantiated allegations against these men and women with zero evidence of guilt are wrong and should be ashamed, Holman uh, shot back. Well, much of the focus of that hearing was on the treatment of migrants detained crossing the border by the tens of thousands each month, but while acknowledging there was a humanitarian crisis at the border. Holman pushed back on some of the rhetoric being used by Democrats and activists who have accused agents of misconduct and mistreatment. He said the same people that vilify Border Patrol for detention conditions are the same people that refuse to answer the call for help until it's too late, he said, apparently referring to those Democrats who refused to back a bill that increased humanitarian funding by $4.5 billion at the border. And here at home, the Portland Police Bureau said it would not be cooperating with any federal agencies, including Immigration and Customs Enforcement, in potential immigration raids promised by the president this weekend, the agency said. Of course, Portland was not on that list, apparently. State law prohibits uh, local law enforcement agencies from using agency monies, equipment, or personnel for the purpose of detecting or apprehending persons whose only violation of law is that they are persons of foreign citizenship present in the United States in violation of federal immigration law. Uh, Postponed um, immigration raids uh, were set to begin this weekend, uh, but didn't happen at the broad scale that we had originally been told. It's unusual to target families as opposed to immigrants with criminal histories, but it's not unprecedented. But this latest effort is notable because of the politics swirling around it. Portland Police Chief Danielle Outlaw said there's there were numerous factors causing fear in Oregon's uh, immigration communities. Now more than ever, it's important to understand and recognize the uncertainty and fear, she said, uh, for many of our immigrant communities, not just around immigration enforcement efforts, but also hate crimes. She went on to say in her statement, members of the police bureau continue our outreach efforts to build relationships, especially in communities that may be distrustful of police. 
Well, the president uh, tweeted earlier last week that raids, which had been scheduled and canceled two weeks ago, would commence this weekend. The raids would target roughly 2,000 people who had ignored final deportation orders in major cities like Chicago, Los Angeles, New York, and Miami, according to the Associated Press. And despite the fact that Portland has not been mentioned in potential cities uh, that could see raids, outlaws sought to reassure those who might fear Portland police were working with federal immigration officials. We want everyone in our community to feel safe, excuse me, and protected, she went on to say. Well, last week, um, the Next Revolution host, uh, Steve Hilton, uh, expressed mounting concerns over the impact of big social media platforms such as Facebook on censoring um, conservative uh, speech and expressing bias. Um, The uh, Next Revolution host uh, attended the uh, social media-focused summit that was held on, at the White House on Thursday afternoon, where he acknowledged conservatives in attendance for pushing past perceived online biases and delivering their messages to the American people was important. The president said, you communicate directly with our citizens without going through the fake news filter. He said, you are bypassing the corrupt establishment and corrupt media. He estimated that between himself and the influential voices in the room, including Fox Nation host Diamond and Silk, Uh, They collectively had more than a half a billion Twitter followers. Trump added that conservatives were getting the word out in a different way and that free speech will always be protected. In a Twitter post fired off before the summit on Thursday, he criticized the tremendous dishonesty, bias, discrimination and suppression practiced by certain companies. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 52 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, we'll hear from Shelby Abbott, Pressure Points, a guide to navigating student stress, and Jack Alexander. We're going to talk about uh, the value of mercy. Portions of our program today are brought to you by Zero Res and Liberty Coin and currency. Well, the House on Friday overwhelmingly passed a bill to reauthorize the compensation fund for victims of the September 11th, 2001 terrorist attack after comedian John Stewart lambasted lawmakers for not moving quickly enough to replenish that critical fund. It comes as the $7 billion 9-11 Victims Compensation Fund is being depleted and has cut benefit payments by up to 70%. The bill, which passed the House 402 to 12, would ensure the fund can pay benefits uh, for 70 years. It now heads to the Senate, where Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has agreed to call for a vote. The first responders who rushed into danger on 9-11-2001 are the very definition of American heroes and patriots. McConnell said on Friday, the Senate has never forgotten the Victims' Compensation Fund, and we aren't about to start now. Nothing about our shared goal to provide for these heroes is remotely partisan. We will consider this important legislation. Soon, well, among the most outspoken uh, supporters of the legislation has been Stewart, who criticized congressional leaders for failing to ensure that the victims' fund set up in 2001. Um, after the terrorist attacks on New York and Washington remained funded. Well, during a press conference on Capitol Hill on Friday with lawmakers and 9-11 first responders, he called the House passage of the bill the semifinal and said the finals are in the Senate. Well, the United States Postal Service is in danger of becoming the dead letter office with its revenue rapidly plummeting. The iconic government run agency stands to go broke in the next five years. Postmaster General Megan Brennan recently warned the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee. And while it's hard to believe the 244 year old service whose unofficial motto promises neither snow nor rain nor heat nor gloom of night. Um, stays these couriers from their swift completion of their appointed rounds. 
Well, the numbers don't lie. The UPS has uh, endured a, or I should say USPS, that's something else, the UPS. Uh, the USPS has endured a whopping $69 billion in net losses over the last 10 years. The volume of mail being processed has plummeted 31% since 2007. And during that time, first class mail has dropped 41%. Absent legislation and regulatory reform, in all probability, we will be out of cash in 2024. Doesn't it sound funny that 2024 is such a short time away? Uh, That will threaten our ability to meet our obligation to the American public and to our business partners, uh, Brennan said, again, the Postmaster General. Uh, The USPS is also under increasing pressure from the Internet, on which users are more likely to send letters and pay bills through emails than via the post office. That threat and the advent of cell phones now allow people to communicate instantly from anywhere instead of having to rely on so-called snail mail. When's the last time you wrote a letter? Well, piles of refuse, spiraling rat populations and enough homeless people to fill a football stadium are causing diseases in Los Angeles more commonly seen in third world countries in Europe in the Middle Ages. Well, in May, the Los Angeles Police Department confirmed that at least one officer had been infected with salmonella Typhi, the bacteria that causes typhoid fever. Well, that disease infects about 26 million people a year worldwide and accounts for about 150,000 deaths annually. Most of the 350 Americans who contract typhoid every year um, have recently traveled abroad. Well, last year, Los Angeles County reported a record 124 cases of typhus, a separate disease that some of the same uh, symptoms, high fever, headache, chills, rashes. It is uh, transmitted by flea-carrying rodents, Rodent-infested, uncontrolled garbage and fueling is rather fueling fears of a possible typhoid epidemic, according to um, the city's most notorious trash pile in downtown uh, Los Angeles. It remains a magnet for rats, despite a major cleanup less than a year ago. Well, a year is kind of a long time, but I can't walk down the street without thinking that a flea can jump on me, says. Um, Estela Lopez, who represents business owners in the downtown area, speaking to an NBC affiliate, infectious disease experts warn a robust rat population that dines on garbage could also lead to the spread of salmonella strains and even bubonic plague. Without antibiotics, typhus can be uh, 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 quite deadly. More French soldiers are said to have died of typhus than were killed by the Russians during Napoleon's 1812 retreat from Moscow. Well, today, less than 1% of typhus cases are fatal, but the disease can be extremely painful. It's even uh, hit City Hall. Liz Greenwood, the city's uh, deputy attorney, says she has been diagnosed with uh, typhus back in November. And it's rare that Republicans and Democrats on Capitol Hill agree on anything these days. But one goal they do share is to stop the exploding epidemic of robocalls driving Americans crazy. Bills introduced by lawmakers aim to hold unwanted callers legally responsible for their harassing dial-ups with strong penalties to make them think twice. How bad is the problem? Well, a study by the robocall monitoring and blocking service, UMail, estimates that 48 billion robocalls were made to U.S. residents last year. This past April alone, there were 4.9 billion robocalls. One reprehensible new scheme is the One Ring robocall, according to the Federal Communications Commission. It targets specific area codes in bursts, often calling multiple times in the middle of the night in an attempt to prompt consumers to call back. When they do, it often results in big per-minute toll charges, similar to 900 numbers, fees largely paid to the scammer. Well, the seriousness of the problem has reached a boiling point. That's according to Senator Chuck Schumer, a co-sponsor of the Telephone Robocall Abuse Criminal Enforcement and Deterrence Act. 
That spells out traced. I love how Congress comes up with these lengthy names. Years ago, robocalls were um, merely a nuisance. That's quickly changing. If enacted, the traced legislation will allow the Federal Trade Commission to fine telemarketers who prey on consumers up to $10,000 per illegal call. It will also extend the time a lawsuit can be filed against a scammer from one to three years and provides uh, providers rather will have to offer authentication tools to let uh, consumers choose if they want to answer a call. Representative Frank Pallone out of New Jersey sponsored the Stopping Bad Robocalls Act in the House, which equips consumers protection agencies with uh, innovative te- uh, technological tools to stop the abuse of calls. He says the staggering number of unwanted calls are uh, returning uh, huge profit margins to robocallers with every dollar spent by robocallers returning as much as $20 profit, a 2,000% um, profit margin. But wait, what about the National Do Not Call Registry created by Congress in 2003 that allows consumers to request their phone numbers be removed from telemarketing call, uh, telemarketers' calling lists? Well, it still exists and can be effective, but today's scammers use highly sophisticated technology, and not surprisingly, they get around it. Well, until the new, until the, uh, new safe safeguards are enacted on Capitol Hill, there are some steps you can take. Don't answer calls from unknown numbers. If you answer such a call, hang up immediately. Do not respond to any questions, especially those that can be answered with yes. Never give out your personal information, such as account numbers, social security numbers, mother's maiden name, passwords, or other identifying information. And if you get a call from someone saying they represent a company or government agency, hang up and call the number on your Um, account statement instead. And if you have a voicemail account with your phone service, be sure to set password for it. A hacker uh, could spoof your home phone number and gain access to your voicemail if you don't. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When we come back, we're going to talk about navigating stress. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, the modern age we live in has shaped the way many young people deal with the pressure points of life. With a unique set of pressures students experience in their transition to college, more young people are struggling with purpose, relationships, failure, community, and isolation than ever before. Author and college ministry leader Shelby Abbott believes that while technology isn't itself to blame, it forces real issues to the surface in the lives of young men and women. His new release, Pressure Points, a guide to navigating student stress, aims to confront many of these struggles, big or small, in light of the gospel. With 20 years experience in college ministry, he meets readers where they are in a memorable, poignant and humorous way. In fact, he's done a little stand up comedy while unpacking biblical solutions to life's pressures. He helps students understand the practical applications of the gospel in the big and small of everyday struggles. Well, my guest is Shelby Abbott. He is an author, campus minister, and conference speaker on staff with the Ministry of Crew. His passion for university students has led him to speak at college campuses all over the United States. He's the author of Jacked and I Am a Tool to Help with Your Dating Life. His latest release, Pressure Points, a guide to navigating student stress. He and his wife, Rachel, have two daughters. They live in Dowingtown, Pennsylvania. He joins us today by phone to talk about an important book to help uh, young people navigate the challenges of life on campus, Pressure Points, A Guide to Navigating Student Stress. Shelby Abbott, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Georgine. It's great to be here. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you started working in campus ministry. What drew you to that particular area of ministry? 
Um, I became a Christian my freshman year of college, and uh, it was through the ministry of crew that I came to know Christ. And so after that, obviously, I got involved with crew pretty heavily, and my life turned around. And so when it came to near the end of my junior year, I had pretty much made the decision that I wanted to do full-time ministry and work with college students because uh, the ministry of crew had poured so much into me and changed my life. I really, it was just kind of an easy decision for me to come on staff uh, right after I graduated my senior year. And so it was a, uh, you know, God used the ministry itself and my passion for being with college students. I'm a pretty big extrovert. I love being around college students and the spontaneity and the fact that really the future is on the college campus today, and uh, if you reach the college campus today, you reach the world tomorrow. Uh, I believe that was true when I came on staff, and I still believe that's true today. So, yeah, it was a relatively easy decision for me. Well, I love that you came to faith in Christ while in college, and I think you've just encouraged lots of parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles who are praying uh, for their sons and daughters and loved ones on college campuses. What are a few of the stressors that students wrestle with today that might be different from what I, as a student many decades ago, might have wrestled with? Yeah, e- even me. I've, I've been on staff now for 20 years. Mm-hmm. I graduated in the late in the late 90s, and so things are way different now. I think... Um, The normal everyday struggles that a college student goes through, uh, you know, with stress about academics and social um, connections with people and all that kind of stuff, that still exists for sure. But I think now, uh, especially since when 2007 hit and the smartphone came out, a lot of things changed in the way that people communicated with one another and the way that people um, uh, got information and all that kind of stuff, not just the Internet, but smartphones in particular. And so since then... And you mentioned this kind of in my introduction. Um, people have been uh, doing life in a, in a very different way, especially on the college campus. They're on the cutting edge of what is the latest and greatest in terms of technology. Obviously, social media has changed the game uh, when it comes to communicating with one another. And I found that as a result of the technology and the, and the, the saturation of social media in the lives of students, <clears throat> the issues that I think every person wrestles with when they go through college just kind of get pushed to the surface in a very quick and easily spottable way, like things like fear, loneliness, anxiety, um, those kinds of things. They're just easily and readily available in the lives of students. And so what I like to do is talk about the issues that they deal with because of our modern age and what we experience, but at the same time present to them true gospel solutions for those things that they're wrestling with. Um, so that they can see that, you know, God is, is, is 100% relevant to their life, even though we live in an age that's thousands of years beyond when Christ was alive here on the planet. So, yeah. Well, I like that, the use of the phrase gospel solutions, because we tend to think of the gospel as being a singular event rather than a, a lifestyle. And what you're suggesting is right. the gospel is relevant to every challenge a student is going to face on campus. And helping them to recognize that and make that connection is an important part of not only uh, campus life, but life beyond campus. Yeah, of course. And, and, you know, it's it's sometimes difficult to put your finger on what what does a gospel solution mean? I'll give you an example. Like, yeah, there was a guy that I was working with last summer on a summer mission, and uh, he was a pretty good looking guy, pretty fit. And he was kind of in the habit of posting shirtless pictures of himself on Instagram all the time. And so I decided to kind of confront him about it and ask him what was going on in his life 
that he felt the need to post pictures of himself on a, on a pretty consistent basis on Instagram. And to his credit, he was pretty astute about what was going on. He said, you know, I, when I post a picture like that and people like it and I get a lot of comments and a lot of uh, little hearts that, that people really like it, it makes me feel good. It makes me feel like I'm worth something, like I'm valuable. And so the gospel solution I tried to apply to his life there was say, hey, what you're searching for in terms of significance and appreciation and love from people in social media and something so shallow of what you're doing, you're really looking for Jesus. You're really looking for a, a soul-satisfying relationship uh, with God, and, and you're substituting it with something that's cheap and uh, you know kind of instant gratification. And so that's what I tried to unpack for him. That's one small kind of example of what I'm talking about when I say, when people ask questions, they have problems in their lives, let's go after the issue behind the issue or address the question behind the question, which is really what are people longing for? They're longing for God. They're longing for uh, fulfillment in a relationship with God that they're trying to substitute in other areas that simply will never suffice. Yeah, yeah, that satisfaction that these temporary things won't satisfy. Now, I mentioned that you've done a little stand-up. Um, how has humor helped you break down walls with college students in your ministry, because it, it can be difficult to broach a subject, the one you just mentioned, for example, um, that's yeah. serious, but exposes kind of a, a weak flank uh, and draw their attention to the gospel as an, the ultimate solution. Yeah, I did stand-up comedy for four years, um, traveling across uh, different campuses in, in the United States, and it, it's brutal. It's really, really hard. Um <laughs> Uh, you get, like, real-time feedback on everything that you say immediately from the audience, which can be good in one moment and just horrible the next moment. So I took my licks uh, being up on stage for about four years, and while that taught me a lot, um, it was also something that God was able to utilize in my life to help me really address things with students because I found that humor has the ability to break down walls and get behind some of the things that people are wrestling with or thinking about or talking about that they wouldn't ordinarily um, be willing to converse about and uh, accept, especially coming from someone who's a Christian campus minister. So um, I targeted Christians in my stand-up for, 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 for the first two years, and then the second two years I was targeting non-Christians, which was even more difficult. I was trying to communicate gospel principles and, and gospel stories through the medium of humor, I found that, you know, studying stand-up comedians that exist in the world uh, all the way back uh, into the 80s and 70s and stuff like that is that humor can be used to communicate and get at very touchy subjects, um, and people would be willing to swallow those pills, so to speak, as mm -hmm. long as they come in a way that makes them laugh and makes them brighten. And so I figured, you know, why... Why not use the medium of humor in a way that can target difficult um, subject matter that people wouldn't ordinarily want to talk about? So with Christians, actually, I talked about evangelism and the need for us as believers to share our faith on a pretty regular basis, which is always a difficult thing to talk about because people don't like uh, being uh, kind of maybe ridiculed or persecuted, or they don't like feeling awkward when they start a conversation with someone. And so I tried to use humor to break down those walls. The, the second uh, two years, second half of stuff with non-believers, I was trying to talk about what it meant to have a relationship with God through the person of Jesus Christ. 
that he's the only way to heaven, which is a very offensive statement in our culture. Mm -hmm. But uh, if you can utilize humor and make people laugh and still talk about serious things at the same time, people are willing to go, even if I disagreed with him, he he was pretty good. He entertained me, that kind of stuff. If you can put a, so to speak, a rock in people's shoe uh, to make them think about stuff, you know, they just have to address it eventually. So my goal in doing stand-up was to do that. And God really utilized that in my life to be able to write with humor as well. So I love doing it. A spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. We're going to take a quick (laughs) break, but we'll continue our conversation with Shelby Abbott. The book, Pressure Points, A Guide to Navigating Student Stress, back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Continuing my conversation with Shelby Abbott, who is a, a pastor on campuses, a minister on uh, college campuses. His book is titled Pressure Points, A Guide to Navigating Student Stress, which is uh, significantly different than the stress that you might have experienced while a student on a college or university campus. Let's talk about how the book is structured, because you have three sections that really focus on the areas where young people struggle, the pressure of finding purpose, the pressure of relationships, and the pressure uh, because of difficulty. Describe for our listeners a little bit about these three sections and what they uh, what they include. Uh, I wanted to add, like address things kind of from beginning to end, and so I found that if we talk about uh, purpose in life, like my connection with God, uh, who 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 God wants me to be, what God's will is for my life, um, does God even like me? Kind of addressing the bigger questions that I think a lot of people deal with. Mm-hmm. Uh, doing that, doing that first, and then moving on to the pressure of unique relationships that a college student experiences. Um, the the kind of the example that I use is like being in college is one of those very bizarre four year periods of time that you're under the authority of your parents still, but you're kind of not at the same time because you're making daily decisions that don't involve your parents anymore, yet many people are still connected to them in in a lot of different ways, of course, financially, but also bigger decision-wise. So there's that, and then there's connections with friendships while you're there. There's there's two two chapters that I address about modern romance and dating, um, quote-unquote dating, which doesn't really exist anymore in in our culture today, and how how to think about that in a godly way and the pressure that you can experience because of that. And then um, there's, there's a couple more chapters in there, too, just about the specific relationships that a student deals with. And then at the end, the pressure because of difficulty, things like suffering uh, that students don't often think about, um, depending on their background and where they've come from, things like when it comes to spiritual warfare, things um, about you know just asking deeper questions to help prepare them for the inevitability of life bumps and friction. And so I felt like the the three different sections would be really good to help a a student walk through from beginning to end, addressing, like I said, the bigger things first and then more specifics as time goes along. So, yeah. As you're trying to um, help students to recognize that there are gospel solutions to their their problems, it's intriguing to me that the first uh, chapter in the book addresses the question, does God even like me? How common a question is that, and what does that reveal about many young people today on college campuses and the challenge of of even understanding how God sees them? Um, I think it's it's one of those things that people don't—I think uh, the average Christian, if you ask them, 
does God love you? They would immediately say yes. But a more unique question is, Hmm. Does God like me? And that's one that I wrestled with quite a bit because I knew God loved me because the Bible told me so. And, and um, you know, I'd, I'd heard that multiple times. But I was like, but if God, like, really spent time with me, would he actually like me? Which is a silly question to ask because he's always he's all around all the time. But I, I wanted to know, like, how God felt about me. Mm-hmm. And so I really tried to address the fact that when you are in Christ, you're not just tolerated by God you're really uh, delighted in by God. And that's not often something that a student really grasps and believes to their core. They would say, yes, I believe that as an intellectual answer to the question, but the way that they live their life would not indicate that they actually believe that God is delighted in them, that he's enraptured with them, he loves them, he likes them, he wants to be around them. And so um, it was an important question, I think, to go after because people are looking for significance and love and um, friendship connection. They're looking to be liked by everyone, and social media is a great uh, mm-hmm. indicator of that. Um, and so when we ask the deeper questions, like, what well, does God like me, like in the way that someone double taps my photo to like it, or does God actually like me in, uh, in all of my messiness and flaws? And so I try to go after that in a very real way to help them to see when they are in Christ, the answer is an absolute yes. And you need to let that sink in to your heart before you go any further, because if you, if you don't really believe that your life will just be religious activity and not an actual relationship. with God. That's such an insightful uh, point that you make with young people, given the the environment that we find ourselves in. Another uh, thing you commented on a moment ago is the fact that technology has really changed modern dating. Uh, In fact, I'm not sure the word actually applies anymore. In what ways is the digital online presentation of a person, not an accurate picture of their true self, and how has that impact, impacted the way men and women relate to one another in the, to use an arcane word, perhaps, dating environment? Yeah, the it's a, it is a very, like, big one, and that's why I took two chapters to yeah. address it. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting environment now um, because of the prolific nature of smartphones and social media. So when you're putting yourself out there, um, not just in a romantic sense, but on social media, it's a polished version of yourself. It's an, it's the, it's the best and the brightest of who you are. And so we always try to put our best foot forward when it comes to that kind of stuff. And, uh, the, what I like to call the digital shield is what people put out there via social media, or they communicate through text messaging and they're not actually talking to one another face to face. And it's a kind of layer of protection that people put around themselves in order to prevent themselves from getting hurt, um, which has always kind of existed before. It was like, it used to be like you would talk to your friend and say, hey, ask her if she likes me, that kind of a, a, a padding between you and the other person. But now, since everybody's got a smartphone uh, on a college campus, they're, they're choosing to communicate uh, in the ways that are the easiest um, to them in, in a way that, that reduces the level of anxiety now, but in the future, uh, you have to pay for it because you don't know how to handle authentic um, conversation with someone. You don't know how to handle, um, you know, any conflict that might pop up, any kind of relationship bumps that might might happen. So people are under underprepared 
for what a real mm-hmm. romantic relationship looks like because they have not practiced it from when they got their first smartphone. Yeah. So what I try to go after with them is to help them to understand that it's more difficult. Like, it's really difficult for a guy to ask a girl out face-to-face. It's just really difficult to do that, much like it's difficult for a woman uh, to, to say, no, I'm not really interested when a guy shows interest in, in, in her. That's, like, really difficult. So usually people opt for the easier route, which is something through their phone, and I try to communicate to them that that's a mistake. It's a mistake. You've got to lean into the anxiety and the, and the pressure of it now because that will pay off in the future. It will help just like, you know, breaking down a muscle, build it back up stronger. We need to take our hits and we need to go through those kind of things in order to see real change, real growth, real development, real maturity when it comes to relationships. So I tell them don't start a relationship via text message. Have, have the guts to go talk to someone face-to-face. And uh, not only will you stand out as, for the guys, a, a man among boys, but you will you will communicate in- integrity and character in a word world that kind of just devalues devalues those those admirable mm-hmm. things in men. Yeah, it's just one of those things that people don't really care that much about anymore. So when you do something like that, that's very unique, and you're not escaping behind your phone. Um, that's going to be attractive in a number of different ways. Well, in your book, you write about escapism, the need for authentic Christian community, which can differ from just Christian community. Uh, you um, deal with uh, some subjects that you might not expect in a book of this sort. For example, uh, the need to wait, uh, the value of waiting, the uh, the subject of suffering and so on. There's just so much more than our time will permit. But uh, let me just ask you finally how a parent can best encourage their children as they transition to college and beyond um, and anticipate the pressure points that are going to uh, to be a part of that journey. It's a great question. Um, and that's, and my my daughters are young now; they're they're eight and five, and so I don't have to deal with that yet. But I know <laughs> it will be coming soon. Yeah. And so, but it's one of those things that I think probably the best thing a parent can do right now is to help their child understand the truths of the gospel. And I think everything else is secondary to that. A lot of times we want to set up boundaries and try to create an environment to be like, hey, don't make mistakes. Don't don't make bad decisions while you're there. Don't, you know, I'm afraid for you. I feel nervous. Really, those are legitimate concerns for a parent, but really what they need to do is instill the truth of the gospel in the heart of their son or daughter in a way that all their decision-making will flow from what has changed in their heart. Um, as opposed to just setting up boundaries and rules and obedience structures yeah. for them when they go to college. If their heart is is enraptured with the gospel, if they love Jesus, they'll make mistakes. Of course they will. But at the same time, they will learn from those mistakes, and the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us, because of w- the fact that we have accepted Christ's payment for uh, the penalty of our sins, He will help us to make better decisions in the future. That's right. Well, Shelby Abbott, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Yeah, sure. Again, the book, Pressure Points, A Guide to Navigating Student Stress. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, Scripture mandates that the people of God are to love mercy. You'll find it in Micah 6, 8. And Jesus once instructed a group of listeners to go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Matthew nine thirteen, God desires his people to be living expressions of his mercy on earth. How can we honor his instruction? 
Where does mercy fit into our understanding of the gospel? And how can we embrace mercy so it overflows into our actions, our conversations, and our relationships? Well, new data from Barna Group show that the church at large lacks consensus in answering these questions. Informed by these findings, Barna and the Reimagine Group have produced a comprehensive uh, suite of tools that will help lead the church, the family, and teams to deepen their awareness and embrace of mercy in our hearts, our homes, churches, and communities. It's shaped by the insights of ministry experts and practitioners. And here to talk with us about that is Jack Alexander. He is the author of The God Impulse. The Power of Mercy in an Unmerciful World, and founder of the Reimagine Group, who, along with uh, Barna, produced the uh, Mercy Journey, bringing hope and healing to a broken world. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, Georgine. Great to be with you. Well, let's start at the beginning and how the subject of mercy, uh, this journey uh, that you write about and provide resources regarding how it came about. Yeah, well, when you look at the incivility and divisiveness that we're bombarded with every day, um, I was studying the Good Samaritan and at the same time taking a theology class, and I noticed in this theology textbook, Georgina, it was 1,200 pages long and had one paragraph on mercy. So it was a hint to me that we may not have been understanding this as well as we should. Mm. Now, I think some of us may not fully understand the meaning of mercy outside the context of you see someone is injured and you have mercy on them. But in the context of our everyday interactions with others, people with whom we agree and those with whom we disagree, when we have conflicts, for example, in the church or within our own family, can you help us better understand what mercy means in that context of daily life? Yes, uh, very simply, it's an engaged heart. Uh, Microsoft found that the average human attention span is eight seconds. And when you're sitting with a with your spouse or a family member or a friend or just somebody you know at work, um, they can tell very quickly whether your heart is engaged with them. And with these short attention spans, I think it's we're really in sort of a mercy crisis. And, you know, that's why I wrote this book. So where do we begin to recognize, first of all, and I, I quoted a couple of scriptures um, uh, regarding the subject of mercy, but where do we begin to recognize the value and, and the importance of mercy as a guiding principle um, through life? Where do we start? Well, it's important when you look at Scripture, like Psalm 25:10 says, all the ways of the Lord are mercy and truth. And Psalm 85:10 says, when mercy and truth kiss, righteousness and peace come together. So you see this dynamic combination in the ministry of Jesus. You, he preached but imagine him looking into your eyes or touching you. I mean, the, the tone, the focus of his voice, you could, you could see his compassion while you're hearing these words of truth. So I think very, very much that it's this combination of mercy and truth coming together. And what I've found in the research that is that conservatives have an appropriate high view of truth and a lower view of mercy, and liberals have a high view of mercy and a lower view of truth. So they end up fighting together, and mm. we experience that every day. Well, let's talk about um, some of the more sobering, and that certainly would be, and shocking results that came out of this research. Yes, the most shocking, and in my book, I talked about the outsourcing of compassion. You know, the number of nonprofits has grown to 1.6 million, you know, and it's it's doubled in the last 20 years. And so by, when I hired Barna, they found that only 80, well, 83% of Christians said it's not their personal responsibility to show mercy. So they think it's the government. They think it's the church. 
They think it's uh, Samaritan's Purse. They think it's IJM. And, and there's some great, great organizations who do this work. But it's when we do hands-on thing, when we are with people that are different than us and we have an engaged heart and we build relationships with them, that it really makes a difference. In the Mercy journey, you make the point that um, mercy is an investment. Um, talk a little bit about what you mean by that and how we can change our thinking and orientation away from that's somebody else's job. And as long as I financially invest in what they're doing, it's really not my problem. Georgina, I'm so glad you mentioned that because that was probably my biggest takeaway in the last three years was Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And I think I always looked at it as something that was timely, costly, messy, and really, I've seen in my own life, as God has stretched me in this area, that that His daily mercies return to me. I, I call it sort of a non-financial sowing and reaping. When we sow mercy in the lives of other people, and this is not just the poor, the widows, orphans, or victims of hurricanes or something like that. It's also prisoners and our enemies. And that was another big finding, that the church's understanding of mercy is often victims rather than enemies and prisoners and people who have crossed some sort of boundary, whether it's my individual boundary or a society boundary. Yeah, my mercy only extends as far as you don't offend me by crossing one of those boundaries. That tends to be our position. Thankfully, that's not the position God took toward us. Well, when people say, what can I do? I say, well, 23% of Christians have somebody in their life they can't forgive, Barna tells us. And among millennials, it's 33%. And David Kinnaman, who owns Barna, says, Jack, I think these percentages are understated. Mm. So we're really a religion of forgiveness. In the Lord's Prayer, it says, we'll be forgiven as we forgive. But we seem to have this block of being able to forget for to forgive. And I interviewed Tim Keller about this. And I said, Tim, do you think it's possible to forgive someone without really having mercy for them? He says, Jack, I really don't think it it is possible. Mm. Yeah, I'm just struck by the fact that that's probably an underestimation and how sad it is and what it says about us as followers of Christ, our misunderstanding of what it is he's actually calling us to do. Now, the mercy journey is divided into four sections. Let's talk about each of those sections, mercy in our heart, our homes, churches, and communities. Um, Describe for our listeners how each of these sections addresses how we as followers of Christ ought to live that mercy that we have received. Well, again, it starts with our own hearts. And I think we've got to realize, like Jack Alexander was an enemy of God. Jesus pursued me. He, he, He loved me. He died for me. And so I think that it starts with with my heart change and realizing what Jesus did for me, and that allows me to have an engaged heart with others. And then taking that into our home, having that balance of mercy and truth in our home. I think, again, if we're conservatives, when we have a tendency to to over-index truth to mercy, that would be a challenge I would give to all of us is how are we engaging with our children? How are we listening to them? How are we creating an environment for them to succeed? And then we go from our home into our church that obviously this is a build and that we can be in community with each other and we can provide a safe place for others to share. I think a truth-oriented culture is going to scare a lot of people away from sharing both their needs and their sins And finally, the community, if we're really empowered in our church and we're in community, 
uh, in our church, then we can go to our community, to people who are different than us. Uh, last week, I had the opportunity. There's an African-American young man, and he's been a prisoner, and he's been homeless, and I've mentored him for 36 years. Mm. And I had lunch with him, and it took probably an hour and a half to be with him, and he's becoming a carpenter, and, you know, I helped get him some tools. And, you know, he's sending me these texts and just thanking me. And, you know, the, the word mercy in Hebrew is rakam, which means womb. And for a woman, when she's pregnant, she's shaping the baby, but the baby's also shaping her. And I drove back from that lunch, and I realized that I've been reshaped. And I think that when we get in relationships with people, when we open our hearts and extend that compassion to others who are different than us, we get reshaped. And I think that's such an important part of our sanctification. We're talking about the mercy journey, bringing hope and healing to a broken world. It's a resource available Uh, to churches and others who take seriously what the gospel says is our charge. We're going to continue our conversation with Jack Alexander in just a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. I'm continuing my conversation with Jack Alexander. He is an author, The God Impulse, The Power of Mercy in an Unmerciful World. And he's the founder of the Reimagine Group, who, along with uh, Barna, has authored The Mercy Journey. It's a resource for the church, for families, for those who are interested in taking the, uh, the scriptures seriously and our need to forgive Uh, because we have been forgiven. Now, one of the stats that you referenced earlier um, says that one in four practicing Christians has a person in their life uh, they just can't forgive. How is it that we forget so easily that we have been forgiven much in when it comes to extending forgiveness to others? This is a a disappointing and shocking stat, but it's very telling as well. Well, the importance in understanding mercy is we don't deserve it. We didn't deserve it from God, and people don't deserve it from us. And yet, it's a real tiebreaker. I think mercy begins by understanding someone's story. And I would encourage myself, every listener, to to just think of that one person that you're struggling with right now, and would it be possible to go to them and just ask them some open-ended questions and just get to know their story and that could that cast things in a different light that could open up your heart and you could extend that mercy or, or forgiveness to them? If we hear the story and it's not satisfactory, we don't have a natural response of, oh, now I get it. We're still called to extend mercy? Yes, we still are. I think it's it's uh, it's part of our will. And, and mm-hmm. again, when we look at that Jesus, the, the most merciful thing that ever happened is the wrath that we deserve collided with Jesus's mercy at the cross, and mercy won. And so I think that whatever wrath we're feeling towards the person, it's like when Jesus talked about the uh, merciless servant. You know, we've been forgiven so much more than what we need to forgive. And if we can't do it, I think we've lost touch with really what Jesus did for us. Yeah, and the the uh, the weight of our own sin. I mean, I think we kind of have gradations of it. You know, I wasn't that bad. And in fact, God got a little bit of a bargain, but there are other people that, you know, really, they were on the brink. We we really forget how far off we were and the extent to which he went to reconcile us to himself through the high cost of the cross. Well, I think pride is sort of that secret sin. Mm-hmm. And we become God and it's hard to see. It's hard to be called out on. And he was a businessman. I'd experienced success, some success. And, you know, God really revealed the pride in my heart. And I realized that 
that that's the sin of the devil. It's the mother of all sins. And whether it's homosexuality or greed or idolatry or whatever you want to think of, that I begin to see other people in the world as much better than myself if, if I had, had succumbed to pride. Mm, such a good, uh, a good perspective. Now, are church leaders communicating mercy uh, in the church? Is that where part of the deficit comes? And how can they be better equipped? And I ask the question because I know that the mercy journey uh, that we're talking about is a resource that can help rectify any deficit there might be? Well, I think the primary problem I found with the church is they define mercy, again, as widows, orphans, victims, things that I could have been a victim, I could have been a widow, I could have been an orphan. And so we can identify with people, and so we want to help those people but when you, again, you become a lawbreaker, somebody violated my boundaries, somebody's in prison, they violated, uh, by a five to one ratio, we want to forgive victims rather than enemies. And by a 10 to one factor, we want to forgive and show mercy to uh, victims rather than, than prisoners. So these are wild statistics. And yet I think the fruit, Jesus went to lawbreakers, he went to prostitutes, mm-hmm. he went to sinners. He went to drunks. He he hung around with people, and his reputation among the Pharisees was trashed because he did. And yet, I think that we can have that same tendency of wanting to be with people like us, forgiving people like us. But when people start violating these boundaries, they're sort of off limits. So I think the church needs to flip its definition of mercy, because when Jesus talked about mercy, the expert in the law and the Good Samaritan he picked a story of a of a pixel person who was an outcast giving mercy to a Jew so and to an enemy. And so that's how Jesus described mercy, and yet our churches are talking about it as very victim-oriented. Mm. We're to love the perpetrators and the instigators, the, the enemies. Now, I think for many of us, we are reluctant to extend mercy in those uh, cases because we assume that if we extend mercy, we are somehow endorsing the, the wrongdoing that's that's taken place. Can you help to reconcile that in our hearts that when you extend mercy, as we have uh, received mercy, that it's not endorsing or somehow embracing and accepting a behavior that falls outside what's acceptable, but we are following the example of Christ, first of all, and doing what he has expressed is his desire for us in being ambassadors of Christ. Well, when you're enabling or becoming codependent with someone, you're not really showing mercy. In the book, I say you always show mercy unless showing mercy isn't being merciful. And so if the right thing for someone is to draw a strong boundary, um, basically tough love, that can be the most merciful thing you can do in many circumstances. So it's not always just laying down and rolling over. But I think that when you show mercy to a perpetrator, it's a shock. It shocks the system because people, people are feeling shame. They're feeling guilt. And, and Georgine, in the last couple of years of interviewing probably over 100 Christians, I, I talk about the prodigal son and the father running to somebody who totally messed up his life. And I say to people, how many times has that happened to you? Mm. And literally people will tear up and say, I can't remember one time when I totally messed up and someone ran to me and embraced me. So I think that Again, that's when Jesus talked to the Pharisees, he talked about the Good Samaritan, he talked about the prodigal son. He gave these these stories of mercy to shock 
the Pharisees who thought they had it all right. And, and so I think that when we have a child that's maybe gotten pregnant out of wedlock, we've had someone, I had someone recently who stole, stole checks from me. And I got with him and I said, why did you do that? And he said, he's a very poor guy. And he says, I used to take them around to show people that I knew you. And I thought, this guy was borrowing my reputation. I thought, and the Holy Spirit basically convicted me. And he says, you borrow the reputation of Jesus every day. That's that's so so, good. So I, I think when we engage with people and have an engaged open heart, it gives God the chance to really do a miracle. Mm, that's so good. Explain the relationship between mercy and justice. Well, I'm so glad that you brought that up because young people today are crying out for a just society. Yes. And if you look at the four steps in my book of, uh, of mercy, as Jesus described it, it's see, he saw and he felt compassion for the enemy, go, he went to him. The third step is the step of justice. He did a bunch of great stuff for the person and endure. He says, I'm going to, when I return, I'm going to come back. And again, he spent the night with them. So that engaged heart, that God impulse, I call it, is step one. Justice is step three. And so we say, Georgine, that justice grows in the womb of mercy. And yet if we don't have that open heart, that engaged heart, I don't think we're going to end up with a just world. We need to start with love. Why is cultivating empathy a powerful component in the teaching of mercy? Well, the data, again, showed that if you've been homeless, if you've been on government assistance, if you've really messed up in a certain area, you you are apt to show more more mercy. And I think that sometimes in the conservative church, we sort of shoot the wounded. We we don't allow people to take their pain and their failure and help them use it productively in the ministry to others. How do you hope this resource, The Mercy Journey, um, will help our listeners, as well as your book, which uh, draws on much of the information that uh, that this uh, survey provides, the God impulse, the power of mercy in an unmerciful world? What do you hope of people will take away from this uh, this exploration of their own hearts to determine if they are merciful and if they're allowing the Holy Spirit to produce in them what God calls us to become? Well, I think really two things. I think if there was a mercy revolution in the church, it could break down this incivility and divisiveness that we have. Second, this August in Atlanta, we've initiated a, a, a whole conference that over 1,100 people are, are attending, Louis Giglio speaking and John Perkins and we're leveraging this data into the race conversation. And we're having a day of lament on August 25th and a 21-day fast before that to lament the, what's happened to African-Americans for the last 400 years. It's the anniversary of the slaves coming to Jamestown. So we're hoping to very practically use these principles to provide healing in this racial uh, division and, and pain that we see. Now, for people who are interested in more uh, information on that effort, as an African-American, I'm very interested. Where can we learn more? Well, go to OneRaceMovement.com. We've got videos on there. Last August, we had 25,000 come to pray against the sin of racism. We had over 1,000 millennials climb Stone Mountain, which is the largest Confederate uh, monument uh, in the United States and dedicate their generation to racial healing and unity. 
And so we're building on that in Ezekiel 9. It says to lament and grieve and wail over abominations and injustices and all those have happened to African-Americans for 400 years. And, you know, we're starting a fund called the Leadership 400 Fund to aggregate capital to help young African-American leaders get be educated and mentored. So we're really taking all this very seriously. Very seriously. Well, Jack Alexander, thank you so much for talking with us today. Well, God bless you. You as well. Again, the uh, Mercy Journey, you can find it. Reimagine Barna are the publishers. And the God Impulse, his book, uh, is also published by the same, and you can find that as well. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.